Erasing the Stigma, Conversations about Mental Health in the Legal Community. Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, Conversations about Mental Health and Wellness in the Legal Community. I'm your host, Mark Yacono. The goal of this podcast is to talk about and raise awareness of mental health and substance abuse and wellness issues faced by our profession. In each episode, we engage in conversations about these issues and about how to manage them both personally and from an organizational perspective. As we moved into 2024, it brought issues of leadership and building cultures for optimum performance into sharper focus. That brings us to our guest today, Andy Hilger, who I'm thrilled to have. He is the former president of Allegis Group, which is a privately owned multi-billion dollar recruiting and human capital firm spanning the globe. Included in its portfolio of companies is my former employer, Major Lindsay in Africa. During his time with Allegis, Andy led through humility, introspection, and an ethic of care, and a keen interest in bringing out the best in people. He is one of the most thoughtful observers of the modern workplace and a consistent advocate for the type of leadership that respects the dignity of employees while advancing the interests of the business. So, Andy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. First, thanks for having me, Mark. I'm excited for the conversation, and I hope I can offer some perspective to the folks who, who listen, but I really appreciate what you're doing for the legal community. Maybe I'll start not with work because I think sometimes we start there and implies that's maybe the most important stuff. So for me, the important stuff, I'm a husband of 27 years. Uh, actually, now that I've left Allegis, I'm probably known more as Jen's husband than just about anything else. Father of three, we have twin daughters who are 23 years old and a 19-year-old son. And I appreciate the kind words about the way I tried to lead and try to live so my origin story, I graduated in 1990 from college with an English and philosophy degree. And for those listeners who were in the job market in 1991, it wasn't a great market unless you were maybe in engineering or accounting. Those friends of mine had jobs or some of my friends who were in the Naval ROTC had jobs because they were going over to the Persian Gulf at that time. I ended up deciding to do a year of service and found an organization called Boys Hope, Girls Hope, and worked in a group home for a year that turned into two years and is actually where I, I met my wife. From there, I went back to school and got a master's in English and creative writing and thought the that I was probably going to write and teach, and uh, but I needed to pay a few bills. So I, I took a job with a regional company in Syracuse, New York, and I was reluctant, thinking I don't really want to go the corporate route. And I spent about two and a half years at that company. It just wasn't a great fit from a values perspective and left me thinking, what am I doing? My wife and I decided we were going to move to Baltimore. We had some friends there and needed just some space to figure out what was next. And I stumbled upon this company called Aerotech, which later was renamed as a parent company, Allegis Group. And joined there thinking, again, this is probably something I'll do for a little while, but really fell in love with the culture, found that the people that were there were people that I really enjoyed spending time with. And it was a culture that challenged me to get better every day. I never really felt like I had a job as much as 
a mission and, a, and an assignment and, and was entrusted with lots of interesting problems to solve. I, th- I spent the last six years of that journey as the president across a number of operating companies. A- as I took on the, the, the role, and a lot of my job was to model the values, to, to make sure that we preserved our soul while we were continuing to grow uh, and while we were really going through a lot of transformation. Allegis understood that its soul was around relationships, around a set of values that included how do we create opportunity for those around us. A huge part of my job was to create a space where people could be authentic, could be themselves, and, and to model those values and make sure that we stayed really true to our purpose, Mark. That's a, a fabulous description. And to be clear, you had the full support of the chairman. Oh, without question. I, th- I think the, the company was founded on this idea that we're in the opportunity business and we're in the leadership development business. I, I was not, <laughs> by any stretch, sort of a lone voice trying to ensure that we stayed true to our culture. That was a top down and that existed before I, I got there. I think, I, if anything, I was a steward of that culture and I was somebody who was charged with how do we continue to evolve? What I learned from Allegis was certainly a lot about strategy and scale and understanding markets and how do you grow and how do you think about growth? But it was so much more about how do you make sure that the culture stays front and center? How do you make sure that in every conversation, people realize why we're here is more important than what we're doing. And, and it doesn't mean that everything was touchy-feely by any stretch. There, there's a, a lot of accountability. There's a sense that we need high standards and we need people who want to uh, work in a place where there are high standards. What brought us here today is an article you wrote on LinkedIn comparing the leadership style of Steve Ballmer during his tenure at Microsoft with the leadership style of his successor, Satya Nadala and a comparison of the relative financial performance under each. It went viral and it got a lot of passionate comments, some in brutal agreement, some in brutal disagreement. I want you to tell our listeners why you wrote the article. Yeah, it, I didn't expect it to go viral for one thing. And it's it, it was a pretty crazy experience for about two weeks where I was waking up to reposts and comments and trying to keep up with the the conversation that it, it seemed to have inspired. For me, what I really liked about the story and about Microsoft's transformation is that in times of a lot of change and uncertainty, I think we at time we 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 risk resorting to some of our preconceived notions and biases. And and for selecting leaders and thinking about leaders, oftentimes what that means is Unfortunately, sometimes it works out great, but unfortunately, it's too often tall, strong white men who command the room and have a certain presence that can project strength and confidence. And I feel like uh, right now in a time of change and uncertainty, too often we're thinking too narrowly about what leadership looks like or should look like. So probably one of the reasons I wrote it was to say, I think we're missing out on some amazing leaders if we have a pretty narrow definition. And and I think there's a lot of research that suggests that leadership, like the style that Satya seems to exhibit, can be incredibly effective. So that was probably one reason. The second ties to that, Mark, and, and it's this idea 
that that we live in a world where learn it alls are going to be more successful than know it alls. And and so at the heart of that story, Steve Ballmer had an amazing career. And Microsoft is not Microsoft without Steve Ballmer. If if you have Gates as the founder, Ballmer was really the one who helped figure out how to scale and how to sell and became this larger than life figure. Um, but he created, I think, and I think this was confirmed through a lot of the comments, a lot of worth and value was defined by the people who knew it all. They hoarded information and at times they they were maybe less collaborative than people would have liked. And in fairness to Balmer, he took over during a really turbulent time. It was He took over in 2000, right before the dot-com bubble burst. That was a pretty protracted, tough period for a company like Microsoft. They had some really solid growth years, and then they got hit with the global financial crisis a few years after that. In fairness, he was a wartime CEO dealing with a lot. And he was also, I think, the product of a time when we were maybe celebrating the Jack Welch style of celebrity CEO, craving the spotlight was viewed as a good thing. Welch kind of viewed, uh, get to be number one or two in your industry or get out. Let's force rank people and cut the, t- the bottom 10%. And I think, you know, like a lot of CEOs, Balmer embraced that. And, and I loved the way Satya came in and said, hey, really explicitly, we want to be a learn-it-all culture, not a know-it-all culture. And, and you know, I don't want to make too many assumptions, but but I, I think uh, there's there's really good news for the legal profession, which is uh, the lawyers I know are relentless learners. They're really curious, and they do want to understand how to figure out puzzles and move forward. But at times, I suspect if you've been trained to be right, and if you get paid to be right, you may fall a little bit short of creating a culture where you can be humble in your ability to seek more and to learn more. I hope there's some relevance for the the, the legal community, but I, I loved that learn it all over know it all. And, and then the last thing I would say is Satya does have this combination of, of humility and empathy with this really fierce resolve. And, and for me, as we all have entered this liminal space, which to me as generative AI and as all kinds of questions about the future of industry and future of work continue to get raised, we're living in this liminal space. And, and when you are in a liminal space, you tend to be disoriented and you tend to be a little bit fearful. I think Satya's very human and humane approach to connecting with people is exactly what the doctor has ordered to help people through challenging times. And I think that really fits with a lot of what you and your guests talk about. How do we create a level of psychological safety so people can be honest, can be vulnerable, and can process through challenging times? And and it was a pretty remarkable story for me that Satya was able to take one of the largest companies um, with a really defined culture and shift it fairly quickly by by taking a very different approach. So that's really what attracted me. And I think if if I'm being honest, it, it probably went viral for a couple reasons. One was because that message resonated. Two was because there there was the stock performance that that demonstrated that Nadella's approach was 
really successful. There was about a 10 or 11x rise in the stock price during Nadella's reign versus a flat to slightly backwards during Balmer. And I don't love that stock price is the arbiter. There's a lot of good and bad that that comes from that. And I think beyond that, I tagged Microsoft and Nadella. And I think a lot of people in Microsoft started sharing the story and they have a lot of employees. So it, it exploded after that. For the benefit of some of our listeners, can you define what you mean by liminal space? Yeah, so liminal space, I think, comes from anthropology, and it's probably about a hundred-year-old term, and <laughs> I've just been applying it to a lot of things, but it's it comes from a Greek word meaning threshold. And so it's essentially when you've crossed over a threshold, but you haven't yet crossed the next threshold they call that a liminal space or liminality is the concept. And think about a family that moves and the new kid at school who's wandering the cafeteria, who doesn't really have a new friend group, who's carrying his or her tray, trying to figure out, is anyone going to invite me to sit down and think about the feeling that you have when you've left a, a familiar place and you haven't quite figured out your role or your identity in the new place? To some degree, Mark, I feel like we're in the liminal age right now. There's all these things, whether it's elections and democracy, whether it's capitalism and late stage capitalism, whether it's generative AI and what's that going to do for the workforce, that it feels like we're closing certain chapters and we're crossing certain thresholds, but we haven't quite reached that next threshold. And I just feel like this is a time where we need leaders to step up and help people find their voice and realize that they have some agency that they might not otherwise see that they have. And I think without that, uh, people are really struggling and are going to continue to struggle. You raise some interesting points. If you do work in the legal technology space, which I do in my day job as a consultant, you're seeing technology being talked about in a predominant way when legal as an industry has always been slow to adopt it. But as the concept or notion of generative AI has become disseminated, it's certainly shaping discussions. How it's playing out in terms of the efficacy and value-adding services hasn't quite happened yet. But what we do know is that it is going to happen. And there's quite a lot of angst for lawyers in the profession as to what impact it's going to have on their work, whether their work will still be needed being delivered by them as, as people. And we're also faced with a really interesting demographic shift because we have multi-generations in the legal space right now and each generation down is more and more technologically literate they're more multi-dimensional they're not only lawyers but they're participating in hackathons and they're they're doing a wide variety of things and it's juxtaposed with the fact that lawyers as a personality trait are high in skepticism and low in vulnerability, which which is going to be interesting to see if generationally those things start to come into better sync with each other. Because a know-it-all culture to me doesn't mean they actually know it all. It means they believe because they've limited their zone of curiosity that they know it all. A learn-it-all culture is really, you understand the world's this wide place to be curious about everything that's going around you. Yeah, I totally agree with that definition. The more I, I learn, the more sort of you're exposed to things that are exciting and interesting that feel like, gosh, I'd love to learn more about that. And 
you know, I would I want to stack on to what you said about generative AI and, and the angst that people feel right now. I, I spent a lot of time last year trying to get my mind around what does this mean? What does this mean for culture? What does this mean for society? What does this mean for work? I've been to a few conferences. I've certainly dived pretty deep into a lot of the literature. And the real answer is nobody really knows. I think there's going to be a, a lot of change, and but nobody really has this figured out. You can listen to one of the most articulate accelerationists in the world who's telling you why we need to double down and why we need to move faster. And the next day, you can listen to somebody who can make an compelling case that there's existential risk that's very real. To me, there's a sort of race for intelligence that needs to get matched with a race for wisdom. And, and we need to be a lot more thoughtful about how we deploy. And that's at a larger societal level, but that's certainly how I, th I think law firms or legal departments need to be thinking about it. And I think probably the uh, proclivity for skepticism <laughs> will mean that the legal profession are maybe a little later on the adoption curve, but the adoption curve's coming. It's coming. It's just going to you know, take different shapes than we can probably imagine at this point. One of the things that leaders in legal struggle with is the flood of information about products and solutions with generative AI built in to the level of it's beyond the capacity to comprehend what's being said, what's being offered to the market, to really take a, a measured approach or to think through how does this change or potentially impact in a positive way the culture or the way we work. When you have a kaleidoscope that spins at the speed of light, you just have a seizure at some point. Yeah. And it's amazing. There's a woman named Charlene Lee, who I, I think has done some really good strategic thinking around this. And her framework is pretty simple. She talks about threats, bets, and regrets. And, and so if I were a, a law firm or a legal department trying to get my mind around it, she starts with, hey, what are the threats and what's sort of the, the basic governance that you want to put in place? And how do you need to be, to your point, making sure that you're, you've got some North Stars about how AI may be able to enhance the experience for your associates or you know, create a, a more enriching experience for customers. And if you start with a few principles and some North Stars, it'll then guide you know, which products or which opportunities or use cases you want to think about. On the bet side, you got to make some bets. You, you've got to figure out, you're not going to think your way through this. You've got to actually test some areas and, and do what Amy Edmondson would call, find some intelligent failures and figure out how can we test run some things. And, and to your point, maybe there's some amazing associates who have a, a, a real interest in this. You know, how can you get them engaged? And then on the regret side, and this might go to some of your past guests who've talked about some of the character traits of lawyers, you've got to create a safe in environment where failure doesn't mean failure. It means we're learning and we're moving forward. And that's the mantra of all things digital, fail fast, fail forward. I can tell you it's a heck of a lot easier said than done. And too often, I think we have cultures that look for that one throat to choke or want to find blame. And blame is going to create a really slow process and it's going to be really expensive to get to move forward and somebody else is going to figure out how to do it faster. And you know, back to the 
Nadella example, I, I think what he was able to accomplish by coming in and saying, hey, we want to be a learn it all culture. We're going to lead with empathy. We're going to demonstrate humility and vulnerability, but we're going to be really tough minded was he created a space where people could fail. They could fail forward. They could do it in a collaborative way. And it was a way that that the Microsoft team could learn. I think Satya created an environment where people could challenge some of the orthodoxies and suddenly things like Linux became okay. And uh, suddenly there was an opportunity to capitalize on cloud. And I suspect the way that Microsoft thinks about ecosystem partners is a product of a culture where people's voice was heard. And so I, I think there's a lot to learn from that example. And, and in this AI journey for all companies and certainly for legal departments and law firms. Sometimes innovations are viewed with all or nothing mindset. The legal profession struggles with the fact that we can't be innovative and fail in a way that doesn't deliver the work product that's required, right? We, when in reality, the opportunity to experiment with different delivery models and different content creation models can be done on a micro level and can be very rewarding for the people participating in that control group. And that's, I think, very consistent with Nadella's concept of a growth mindset. And it's about really making intelligent decisions about what you want to accomplish. And it strikes me that when you talk about a growth culture and leading with humility and empathy that fosters innovation, collaboration, adaptability, that's, those are essential components to building uh, an emotionally, physically, and, and mentally well environment for people in a high-stress profession that thrive. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And I don't know if it's helpful. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my Allegis experience and some of it were probably my own failures, but in, in trying to foster that sense of experimentation in a culture that was used to winning and used to being successful and viewed failure as losing. And, and as I said, some of this with some time to reflect, I think I've learned where I, I could have gone a little bit deeper, but I do think you know, it's fine to say, hey, we want to fail fast. We want to fail forward. I I'm a huge believer in some of the work Amy Edmondson's done. She recently wrote a book called The Right Kind of Wrong, where she starts to break out that there's multiple ways to think about failure. And if you have the right taxonomy for it, then you can really reap the benefits. And she said, hey, there's just flat out mistakes. And those are not things to celebrate. Now, they're not necessarily areas of blame. But then there's what she would call intelligent failures, which is where you're saying, look, we have a hypothesis. We're going to test this hypothesis. We're going to do it in a controlled way. We're going to do it in what uh, you could call a two-way door. If it goes wrong, we can back out and we can do. And so I, I get why a law firm might be really hesitant to say, we want to create an experimental culture. Our clients aren't paying us to go experiment, but there are likely ways to set up experiments that are hypothesis driven and the value might be in, in proving the hypothesis wrong. And, and I think the more specific and precise we can be with language there, the more we can create that safe space for people to um, experiment. The other thing, and, it, and it's maybe a different way to uh, categorize what I just described there, there's a, a guy named Jeffrey Moore who wrote a book called Zone to Win that was super helpful for me. 
And what he said was, hey, most of your work is happening what he in what he would call the performance zone. That's where you actually have to execute day in, day out. And most of the legal work is going to be living in the performance zone. But there's going to be a couple of other zones that are around productivity. How do we get a little bit better at what we've done? And transformation, how might we be rethinking this law firm? But he had a fourth zone that was called the incubation zone. And that we implemented an Allegis that was a little bit more like a venture capital space. We knew that if we were doing it, some of these things weren't going to work, but we needed to place some bets on some things that were a little further downstream. The people who experienced opportunities to do innovation work and were living in that incubation zone tended to be some of the most engaged, excited people. And, and to me, the world runs on discretionary effort. And so you know, if you can find some ways to unlock that discretionary effort, you can be really successful. And, and in the end, people are going to be pretty charged up and, and there's going to be a, a purpose beyond, did we just uh, hit our billable hours target, if you will? That's a really interesting point. And if you embrace experimentation and you create a framework to do that, you're giving people some meaning other than being viewed as a production unit. And you're allowing them to apply that curiosity in a way that could actually change how they work or impact it for the better. And that's one of the values of, of creating that kind of environment. I 100% agree. And these, I, I think our bias oftentimes is to frame that what are we giving and getting in terms of compensation and benefits? And, and really, you know, what the research would say is people really want those intrinsic rewards, that, that sense of purpose, that feeling that I have autonomy to do what I want to do, and this sense of mastery. I think we have to be a lot more intentional about how we engage people in that broader sense of purpose. And, and my suspicion, Mark, from some of your past guests and some of the past podcasts that I, I, I've listened to is there could be a healthy eye roll from some of the legal community when you start to talk about things like vision, mission, and values and think, all right, that's all well and good, but we've got work to do and, and the billable hour is the billable hour. And I think there's a massive opportunity there. This will be a little bit of a tangent, but I don't know if you've seen, have you seen The Greatest Night in Pop? It's the new Netflix documentary. Is that on We Are the World? It is the We Are the World. It's a lot of fun. And it's it hits my age bracket perfectly in terms of being a teenager as all these stars are forming. But there's a moment at the end of that really struck me. Lionel Richie is really the conductor of a lot of this. He's the guy who organizes 47 superstars to come sing this song. He recruits... Quincy Jones to put it together. It is the who's who of, of everything. And if you think about that timing, 1985, Lionel Richie was the man, which I didn't realize, but he was hosting the AMAs that night that they pulled this off. And the reason they could get everyone was together was because a lot of them were at the AMAs. And he won six American Music Awards, going up against Prince and Purple Rain and going up against Madonna and Bruce, these one-name icons. So he's at the height of his game. He is the host of the awards and he performs two songs. 
All right. So it's about as big a deal as you can be. And then he spends all night trying to herd these cats and tell them to check their ego at the door. And he goes to see his family the next morning. And they all want to ask him about his awards and about about and what it was like to host the show and how cool this was. And he said, all I could talk about was this thing we were doing to help people in Africa. And for me, sort of it was that moment that the, he just said, my family didn't get it. They're like, what are you talking about? And he said, I'm, I'm just telling you, We Are the World was the coolest thing I maybe have ever done. And, and to me, it was this really stark moment where it was nothing about all these extrinsic rewards. The industry was saying, you are above Prince in these six categories. Now, Prince won three, so Prince did fine. And Talk about a rush. You get to perform in front of you know, your peers and do it. And, and he didn't care about that. What he cared about was we got to do this really cool thing that was very mission and purpose driven. And we got to do it together and we got to you know, make a difference in the world. And, and as hokey as that might sound, I think that's what really people want. They want to figure out how can I be part of something bigger than myself? And how can I be part of a team that's doing something really cool? I can be a solo artist and I can go get the biggest bonus I've ever gotten. But what I'm going to remember is what we did as a team and how it was ultimately contributing beyond my own personal accomplishment. There is data out there that suggests that a significant percentage of employees, managers, and leaders are seriously considering quitting their job for one that would better support their well-being. And that is just the general population. The situation is much more acute in the legal profession. That tells you that a significant amount of people want the Lionel Richie experience, right? They want to experience something that goes beyond, I produce this many units of time, I get this compensation, I get this bonus. Everybody likes money, most people. but really what people thrive on. And when I built my, my, my big practice within a firm, what, I, what gave us all energy was the kinetic energy between the team. The fact that we felt we were doing world-class work, the fact that the best idea won, and the fact that when third parties came into our building, they felt the energy. Yes, we were very profitable, but what made it very profitable is we all felt like we were doing for that particular type of work, the best work in the world. And the time we spent tending to our associates and our staff attorneys and our staff and the times they were over at the house and things like that, those things, those personal touches make a difference. They make an environment safe and they make it a place where you want to go because the energy's there. And I think Lionel Richie, that story really exemplifies the kind of feeling that really gives someone a sense of pride that goes beyond something that's going to get dusty on a shelf. I wholeheartedly agree. It's it's what converted me from somebody who said, hey, I don't think I want to do anything in the corporate world to somebody who stayed 25 years and, and felt incredibly enriched, lucky, and valued was, was this feeling that we were doing something bigger than any one of us. And it was with people that I cared about and that 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 they were people who had a, a real desire to win and to do it in an ethical way. I loved to compete, but it was really that sense of what are we doing together and how can we accomplish something? And I think uh, back to the article that started a lot of this, Mark, so many of the comments 
that I got from Microsoft team members were really about this feeling of a sense of purpose that they had. And, and some of them had been there during the Gates era and they said, hey, it was pretty cool that we were putting a computer in, in within everyone's reach. And that's a visionary view. But but some of the comments were, it felt so good to feel like we were doing something to help people be more productive. And they really bought into this mission. As you said, everyone wants to get paid. and and yeah, But the research would tell you, people just want to make sure they're paid fairly, but that's not ultimately what's going to determine, do they have a, a, an exceptional experience or not? What's going to determine that is that sense of, of connection and that sense of meaning that they get through the work that's reinforced through the legal frame, especially in the law firm world, is that associate salaries have never been higher. And mid-level associate salaries have never been higher. And many of the biggest firms have paid significant bonuses. Yet the data suggests that lawyers under 10 years in practice are the most depressed, the most anxious, the most burnt out. So it really does support the proposition that you can't buy wellness or happiness with money. One of the things I took away from your article on Nadella is that you have to have a look at the problems from both an upstream and downstream level. When I had Dr. Richard on, he talked about upstream issues and downstream issues. And I have to confess, I got it wrong at first. I thought of upstream issues as problems at the bottom trickling up and downstream issues of things trickling down. And what Dr. Richard said is, look, if fish are dying at the end of the river, that's a downstream problem. The upstream problem, why are fish dying in the first place? If you have burnout, that's not just an individual issue. That's an upstream issue. Further down the river, people are burning out. Why? What's the cause of that? Further down the river, people are feeling like they can't concentrate or they have a cynical view of their work. What's the upstream cause of that? So I think that the more voices, both inside and outside the legal industry, that are willing to have a sober conversation about the nature of work are the firms that are going to be able to retain people and thrive. And it's hard. Let's, let's face it, structurally, it's hard. Nadella set a new tone, and the comments were fascinating because the pro Nadella people were like, yes, it was like coming to work at a new place. I could breathe. I could collaborate. There's energy. We feel part of something. You'll look at law firms and in some ways, they are still in the Jack Welch Balmer model. They've historically been hierarchical. Some might even uh, say patriarchal. They're built on a model of a small number of equity partners, larger band of not equity partners, and even a larger base of associates. It's built on leverage. The measurements have been brute force equations. Number of hours billed times rates equals success. Profits per partner, revenue per lawyer is shareholder compensation. The other thing is that law firms have always thrived because highly individualistic people can go out and generate and find business. Quite often, those types of individuals aren't suited for firm leadership. Yet quite often, they're put into formal roles. They often end up in charge. Yeah, oftentimes not. Sometimes they overlap. That Venn diagram might overlap, but oftentimes the so-called rainmaker should be out making it rain and should be staying away from leadership responsibility. Now, the real challenge, Mark, as you know, ship isn't really about title or position. 
if the so-called rainmaker doesn't behave in the way that is consistent with the values of the firm, then those tend to be the values of the firm. Your standards are not what you say, they're what you'll tolerate. So for me, not to be too crass or too blunt, but until you take action and say, hey, not only are you not a leader, but, but you are not, no longer part of this firm. If you continue to behave this way, you're going to have some real cultural challenges in, in a law firm or a legal department or any company. That's been my experience. I think I'll keep referring back to Allegis. In the early days of Allegis, Steve Bishotti, one of the founders, parted ways with some of the top performing salespeople because he said, hey, they're not acting in an ethical way, and that's not who we are. And that said more about what mattered and what the values of the company were than any speech anyone ever gave or any words on the wall. And, and I think we have to take this stuff really seriously, and, and it's hard to do. It takes some courage if, if, as you said, the model is built on a certain number of people bringing in business and then a lot of people through leverage and brute force figuring out how to deliver on that business and the firm's profits are dependent on that. There's a lot of incentives that are saying, hey, let's look the other way or let's rationalize that or that's just so-and-so being so-and-so. And that's where I think Satya, in, in his example, in the Microsoft example, ultimately turned over quite a bit of the leaders and just said, hey, you've been great. And I want to thank you for the amazing contributions you've made, uh, but we're entering a new era and, and we've got to you know, build a different ethos here. And, and right now it doesn't feel like you want to be part of that. And that's okay. We're going to thank you, reward you and, and send you on your way. And yeah, there's, I think there's some really good advice in there for all of us. I don't believe there's an answer to this question, but I think the thing about law firms is that if you look at the mobility between partners moving firms, used to be you were a partner and you were there for life. Then it was occasionally partners would split off, go to other firms or form their own firms. Now, the best analogy I have is like in the law firm world, it's like the transfer portal. You're not happy, you shift firms. And you're able to because you bring that economic magnitude that book of business. And I think it's going to be incredibly challenging for firms to build delivery models and to build cultures that will induce people to behave right and not transfer three times to a different college, so to speak. I don't think that happens without some really strong leaders demonstrating a different way and uh, showing that you can create a culture where people want to stay and you can create what I'd call the self-cleaning oven. If, if the system's working well, it shouldn't require the top leaders to figure out who the bad actors are, who are the misaligned achievers are and say, hey, that's not how we work here. It, it's really the culture starts to say, no, we, we are a culture that values collaboration and we value people and we trust one another. And if you're not going to uh, abide by those rules, then then this is not going to be the place for you. I, I think like to be more hopeful that'll happen generationally. But I I think yeah, right now we're seeing the to use the the college transfer portal in college football as the example. Probably less resilience with people just saying, hey, if I'm not going to start in year one, there's a pretty easy opportunity for me to go somewhere else, and it's probably the right thing for the players to have the ability to move schools. Uh, when their coaches could do it without any uh, punitive 
you know, repercussions, uh, but it in the end is not good for the broader system to have this sort of mobility. And I think uh, if I were to say one thing about how I would you know, propose people look at some of the challenges that we've talked about is really understand that they're systemic cha challenges. They're not just the challenges of hey, bad people doing bad things. There, there are some competing incentives and there's a lot of cultural baggage that's created the system. And it's going to take people who are both courageous and willing to transcend those challenges and some of the multipolar traps that are out there. But I think those leaders exist. I think we've seen them. Yeah, we see Asati and Adela at Microsoft. We watched Alan Mulally come in and, and do what he did at Ford. If, if you've ever studied the Ford example. I did a lot of legal work for Ford during the Malawi era. And it was fascinating working with the legal department and seeing the mind shift as his style and strategy and his partnership with David Leach, who was the general counsel at the time, evolved. The year over year and under Malawi's leadership was gaining a lot of energy. And the, the legal department there was being really valued as an integral part of the business. So it was um, fascinating to work with them during that period. I can only imagine. I've only read about it and, and I've, I've known some people at Ford, but it's exciting to hear you say, hey, that I could see it. I could feel it. And that's I could I worked with a lot of people at Microsoft and I could feel sort of their shifts. And when I asked them, hey, is it the shift to cloud? Is it the decision, some of the decisions around opening up the ecosystem, most of them said, no, it's really this idea that we need to have a growth mindset and we need to be thinking differently. And it it showed up in the way they engaged me as, at the time, the CIO of Allegis Group. It was really palpable. It sounds like similar to Ford. One of the things that's going to be interesting in terms of how this law firm dilemma shakes out is that we're starting to see really high-performing partners leave, form their own firms, choose who they want to work with. And to get back to our technology discussion, the idea that you don't need as much physical office space, you don't need a server room that's 35 degrees, that you don't need a duplicating department. The fact that by leveraging technology, you can manage differently. I think that's one pathway forward is people are going to create their own culture-driven firms. And the ones that have, and there have been some very successful ones, not only have longevity with their people, but they're highly profitable. And to me, that may be how some of this, this settles in. And then the bigger firms are going to have to figure out, do we want to be at risk by not changing our culture or tolerating culturally conflict-driven behavior? Uh, I would like to segue now to focus a little bit on the things that people can do to exercise some agency. For instance, if a young lawyer wants to make a difference or start to make a difference and doesn't know how, what advice would you give them in terms of how to approach that? I want to pose a question. If someone in the legal profession or any profession really were to come to you and say, I feel lost at work. I want to be a part of the change, but I don't know how to express that, or I don't know how to find an avenue to pursue that. What advice would you give? Yeah. So gosh, let me tell a little bit more of my story first, which I know we opened with, uh, but I didn't go too, too deep down the road there. 
And I'll, I'll give you a, an early story. So when I started, I had mentioned, I just was trying to pay my bills and figure out what I wanted to do. And, and I was a, a business analyst. So I was modeling processes. I went to a, a meeting and I was sitting in the back of the room collecting notes. And I was thinking, all right, my job here is to ultimately figure out how do we do this more efficiently? It was a meeting to prioritize technology initiatives for 1999 or something of that ilk. And it was a, a pretty good fist fight. Everyone was screaming and pounding their fist on the table. And you know, whoever screamed loudest thought that they would get their need met. So you had representatives from multiple operating companies. And at one point, I noticed a flip chart marker fall in front of my chair. And if you can picture it, I'm in the back of the room. There's all these people crowded around the table or yelling at each other. I got up to pick up the marker and the my boss at the time took my chair and threw it in the hallway. And so suddenly I'm standing up in front of this room, incredibly intimidated, thinking that's not my job. What am I doing? And my boss said, hey, Andy, can you help us land this plane? It seems like we're not getting anywhere. And it was a terrifying, probably 10 minutes that felt like an hour uh, of my life where I turned red and sweat, was sweating and I think I captured a few action items and put a, an item or two in the parking lot. And, and then it left the meeting thinking, I think I have to quit. You know, this is not what I signed up. I'm, I'm the introvert who's supposed to be um, seen, not heard. And I'll just type up my notes and somebody else can figure out how to drive the change. And, and, and my boss just said, hey, I went in and said, why'd you do that? That was terrible. And he said, how'd the meeting go? And I said, well, it was a disaster. <laughs> he said, what was it going to be if you didn't get up there? And I said, well, it was already a disaster. And he said, I can tell you it was better because you actually captured a few action items. I know you don't feel great about it. He said, you can do a lot more. We need you to do more. And I walked in there ready to quit. And I walked out of there feeling nine feet tall because this guy believed in me and, and saw something in me. And yeah, so a lot of my journey, Mark, was taking on problems that nobody could quite figure out what to do with them. And I became the guy that they would just throw in there and say, all right, Andy, can you help us out? And I think for a little while it was, hey, um, you're the smart guy. And then they figured out that wasn't really true. But I was pretty good at, at getting the collective wisdom of rooms and saying, look, I can ask good questions and I can hopefully tease out you know, where we're aligned and, and highlight maybe some misalignment and then create some action that would, will get us through that. And so through the course of my journey, it, it put me in a lot of rooms I probably didn't belong in. I was suddenly um, asked to facilitate strategy sessions for different operating companies, or I was helping with the integration of an acquisition in London or in Australia after that, or yeah, you know, what whatever the the planning might be, and and um, why do I I tell you all this? I I think sometimes um, we can get into the 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 game that it's a race to be better than those around us. And and somebody at one point said to me, "Hey, sometimes different is better than better." And in the end, the reason that I think I was asked to take on different leadership roles is because I had a very different set of experiences than almost anyone else in the company. So I was an N of one, and I had built relationships and built a level of trust with every corner of the company at some level. They didn't view me as a competitive threat. They didn't think I was there to take their job. They just said, hey, Andy's going to come. He's going to help us figure this out. And so... You know, I, my advice for almost anyone is you can be an N of one. Like even if the culture is is maybe um, not lending itself 
to acting in a certain way. And it's a place where bad behavior is getting rewarded or at least not shut down. And there's some sharp elbows. You, know, you have to decide what you stand for. You have to ultimately act your way into a new way of thinking. Figure out you know, where can you demonstrate some vulnerability in a place where people don't seem to want to be vulnerable. And what I've learned is vulnerability is strength. I think Brene Brown is fabulous at explaining through both her research and through narrative how you know, that is a superpower. Take some risks. And in the end, you're going to have to make some choices. You can either say, this isn't the place for me and figure out, is there a better, is there greener pasture somewhere else? You can say, I'm going to play the game and, and you may get those extrinsic rewards. You may win your AMA, but you're never going to have that feeling of fulfillment. And you're probably going to live with a lot of dissatisfaction and a lot of angst because you're not really being who you are, who you want to be. Or you could say, what different is better than better. I'm going to I'm going to be somebody who's going to act in a way that I think is consistent with my values, and I'm going to influence those around me. And, and my belief, and, and this is where, whether it was Balmer and Gates, or I think a gentleman with the last name of Thompson, who was the chair of the board, it took a risk at Microsoft and said, hey, that Nadella guy's got something figured out. Maybe he's our successor. And, and I do think whether people aspire to move up in, in the leadership ranks or not, um, you have more agency than you think you have, and and you can demonstrate some of these qualities and these characteristics with those that you interact with, and you can create your own sense of meaning. Maybe it's about how you're going to commit to developing yourself and developing those around you. Maybe it's about how you're going to create more pro bono work and you're going to give back to the community. But I I, I do think you know, waiting for others and waiting for your department or your law firm to change is a bit of a, a fool's errand and puts you in a, a place of a victim. And you've got to claim agency and you've got to figure out how can I be that N of one and how can I figure out how to be the, to use the, I think Gandhi expression, be the change you want to see in the world. And I feel really lucky that I was in a culture that that really nurtured that. I, I appreciate that not everyone is, and we've got to make choices. And the last thing I'll say would just be, I think people who are pursuing opportunities should be prioritizing culture and values alignment over salary and over prestige and over, is this in the AMLAW, whatever. I, I, I think as people and you said it a little bit earlier, as you see entrepreneurial opportunities for people to say, hey, I don't need all of this and I can go do my own thing. I, I think in the end, this changes when people vote with their feet and say, you know what, I'm going to go to the places that that foster a sense of purpose and really value me as a human and understand that I'm not a billable hour and I'm not somebody who's a, a cog in this broader machine, but I'm somebody who brings my whole self to work every day. I love that advice. And I'll share a little bit about my origin story when I was at a firm. When I was a young shareholder, one of many, the issue is once you're a shareholder, you're expected to deliver business. And how do you all do that? And the managing partner came to me one day and he said, we, in these big litigations, we have all these documents to come in and we have all these reviews. We don't have an attorney managing that. They'd asked four or five different lawyers to do that. And they said, no, that's terrible. I'm not doing it. But I said, okay, this is an opportunity. 
Now, they told me it would only take five minutes a day, which was most definitely not true. But by doing that, I came back to him and said, hey, right now, big firms are getting the, the lead counsel role. But we have so much expertise going back to the Delcon Shield litigation. I think we could create and market ourselves a special counsel to handle the document stuff. We struggled for two years, and then we built a really formidable engine. But when you talk about taking risk, one of the things that, that I think was a turning point was I was I had come out of a four-week trial for a major medical device manufacturer. And my team came to me and said, you have protection because you have these cases you're trying. We're all in on this. We need you to be all in. So I went to the firm and said, I'm not going to do any more trial work. I'm going all in on this. Now, did it impact my compensation for a couple of years? It sure did. Did it energize me and the team to be together every day, figuring out how we were going to be good? It did. And my advice is if you're given an opportunity, take it. Don't assume that it's not it's beneath you or it's not glamorous enough. And when it comes time to inspire people, you might have to take a little bit of risk in the short term to inspire the people that are going to lift you up. And that that's really my take on some of those closing thoughts. Hey, really well said. I, I couldn't agree more. And just I said it maybe briefly at the beginning, but thank you for doing what you're doing. It frankly just m- makes me both sad and concerned when I see the statistics and hear the stories about how many people are struggling, they're struggling on every level and how that's even disproportionately so in the legal industry. So I am really grateful that you're creating this space for people to talk about it. And and I, I hope for people to process things in a way that they can feel safe talking about it and that they can get better and the the industry can get better because people deserve to feel that sense of connection, that sense of meaning and and feel like they can be their best self every day. Andy, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I know you, you were a little hesitant at first as to whether you would be a right fit given the industry, so to speak. But I felt like we needed to have a conversation about the nature of work and the nature of leadership. And you've synthesized this at a higher level than most people that I've seen. If you want to read some really compelling stuff about the nature of work, how we treat people at work, and follow Andy Hilger on LinkedIn. Andy, it is terrific having you as a guest, and I can't thank you enough for coming on. Hey, thanks so much, Mark. Thank you for listening to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal community. This podcast has been brought to you by Mark Yakino Untethered, you can reach me at myakino25 at gmail. You can also reach me on Instagram at myakino25. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast and the stories we have to tell and share both now and in the coming months.